This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, Robert Bajero, who was found guilty of murder in his fourth trial, that's a record-setting trial, of course, in the Canadian justice system, has applied to appeal that conviction for the murder that uh, he was convicted of. Susan Claremont, award-winning uh, crime specialist with the Hamilton Spectator, writes about it in the Spec today, and she joins us here on CHML to discuss this. Good morning, Susan. Happy New Year. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. Happy New Year. Uh, you didn't totally, you weren't surprised by this, this appeal, were you? No, not at all. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, virtually every offender convicted of first-degree murder appeals because they have nothing to lose. Uh, but also I, I discussed it with Bajro himself and his lawyer beforehand that uh, should he be found guilty that there was a plan to appeal. And, and as you point out in the piece that you wrote today for the spec, Susan, he's got nothing to lose here, does he? He doesn't. Um, you know, uh, a conviction for first-degree murder comes with an automatic life sentence of life in prison with no chance for parole for the first 25 years. Um, Badger's a little bit different in that regard. He's already served 11 years of his sentence, so that will be uh, credited to him so he can apply for parole earlier. Um, but he's still looking at the possibility of, of a whole lifetime, the rest of his lifetime, in prison. So why wouldn't you apply for or apply for an appeal? Sorry. Now, I, I understand that some people get upset about this because they feel that justice was finally done in this circumstance. But uh, but as you point out, uh, th- that's our Canadian justice system. I mean, they do have that right. Uh, just as, uh, of course, the two murderers, the convicted murderers uh, in the Tim Bosma case are, are repealing their ver- their verdicts as well. So, I mean, this is this is really just part of the judicial process, isn't it? It is. And, and Bill, you know, it's important that people understand that applying for appeal does not in any way mean you're guaranteed to get an appeal. Um, so Badro has put in his paperwork. He had a, a 30-day uh, window of opportunity to do that after his, his conviction, after his guilty verdict. So he's put the paperwork in, but um, there's a long, long ways to go before, um, before we get to the possibility of an appeal. Um, he, he wants an appeal, but you've got to meet Two, one of two or both um, criteria in order for that to happen. Uh, there either had to have been a possible error in law made during the trial process, or there has to be new and compelling evidence. And frankly, I don't see either of those things happening in this case, though. Hey, that's an important element to this, isn't it, Susan? You can't just simply appeal because you didn't like the verdict. Uh, there's got to be a rationale behind this. Now, as, and, and apparently he does not have to get into specifics about that to at least uh, get this on the record that he needs to appeal. That, that I assume, is going to come later. That's right. So this very first stage, the, the getting the paperwork in within 30 days, is usually um, a, a matter of the offender themselves at, in prison handwriting uh, out a form that says, I want to appeal. And um, that starts the process. That's almost a, a, a placeholder for what will come next, which is, um, in Badger's case, he will be applying for legal aid. Um, and legal aid will, will take a look at the merits of the case and the merits of an appeal and see whether there's really any chance of an appeal even happening. If, they, if legal aid thinks there's a chance, then um, it, it could 
give money to Badro so that he can hire a lawyer who will then help him through the formal appeal process. Who's going to be uh, working on his side like this? I mean, obviously he had a, a lawyer during this trial. Will it be the same lawyer? No, it won't. His lawyer during the trial, Russell Silverstein, says that, that he's not going to be doing the appeal, and that's also normal. Um, the lawyer who does the trial may not really be able to see um, errors in a case that, that they ran um, just months ago in court. So it usually goes to an appellate lawyer, a lawyer who specializes in appeals, who can go back and review the case and pick out errors in law that could be grounds for a proper appeal. It's, it's rather ironic because, as you mentioned, one of the criteria for this is, is new information. And it was new information introduced into this fourth trial that probably was, was one of the contributing factors in his conviction. It, it could very well have been. Um, yeah, uh, this jury, the fourth jury to sit in judgment of Robert Badrow, was the first jury to hear evidence about the location of a phone booth um, where an um, anonymous 911 call might have been made from. Um, that call revealed intimate details of the crime scene that the Crown thinks only the killer could know. And the Crown presented evidence that that call seemed to come from a uh, payphone outside of DeFasco, literally steps away from where Robert Badgerow worked. And, and that was not introduced into previous trials, which, uh, and again, we can only speculate because we get don't get to talk to the jurors about exactly what was on their minds or what actually swung them one way or another in this situation. But uh, but that was certainly an important piece of information in that trial, wasn't it? A lot of time was spent on that evidence at the trial. The Crown presented uh, lots and lots of evidence to support its theory that the call came from that phone booth. And the defense spent a lot of time trying to refute it. So, yeah, it was a it played a major role in this trial. Well, there's another element to this that you wrote about after the verdict was was given, of course, Susan. And I'm wondering if at all that would play any part in, in any future appeal that's going on here. And that was the fact that there were other charges laid against Badgerow at one time. Uh, they didn't go anywhere, but the, the the similarities between that particular case and, and of course, the, the eventual murder conviction uh, that happened with Diane were very, very similar and, and, and eerily similar, really. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disturbing information. At one point, Robert Badgerow was actually on trial for the attempted murder of another woman. Um, her name is Debbie Robertson, and she managed to survive um, being attacked by a man uh, just after Diane Rowendowitz's murder in the same neighborhood. Um, she was walking home like Diane was, and uh, a man attacked her and stabbed her through the ear with a screwdriver. And remarkably, Debbie survived. Um, Badgero was charged. He was arrested and, and charged with her attempted murder. And... Uh, but partway through the trial for that, um, the charges against the trial stopped uh, abruptly, um, and the charges against Fadro were stayed. Uh, the judge ruled that uh, too many key witnesses had died. Um, 30 years or so had passed since the time of the attack, and key evidence had gone missing. And so Fadro, that... 
that case technically remains unsolved. Nobody's ever been convicted of the screwdriver attack. Let me ask you about that then. From, from your experience in covering these things for so many years, Susan, is that still considered an open case then? I mean, could somebody at some stage, either the Crown or, or a police service, uh, decide to, to continue with that investigation? They could. I mean, if, if new evidence was brought forward, mm. um, Badger could, could um, I suppose, again, be charged in that matter um, or continue on with that case. But uh, it seems very unlikely after all this time that anything new would come to light. Therein lies the big difference, because I know that after the third trial, uh, which was, uh, as you mentioned, a hung jury, uh, the judge at that time said the justice had run its course and they were just essentially going to let it go. But the Crown at that time were the ones that really pushed for the uh, the, uh, the opportunity for a fourth trial, weren't they? That's true. The Crown actually it went, wound up going all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, the Crown argued that um, previous judges who had denied the Crown the opportunity to talk about the location of the phone booth um, had made an error in law, and the courts agreed with that and decided that it should be up to jurors to decide whether the phone call was properly traced to that phone booth or not. And that's indeed what happened in this case. It was left up to the jurors um, to decide what to do with that evidence. Let's assume, and we can only speculate at this stage about any possible appeal. As you mentioned, the two criteria is that there was either an error in law during that case or or there was new information. The likelihood of new information is, is, is pretty slim, I would think, Susan, simply because if it was available, it obviously would have been introduced into this trial. But let's talk about errors in law. This was a different trial from the Bosma case that we talked about so extensively, of course, about a year or so ago. Uh, because there was a jury involved in this, but this was a different scenario. And uh, uh, as you wrote about during the course of the Bajero trial, uh, I, I got the sense that the judge was very, very sure to make sure that all the fine points of law were discussed uh, in open court there between the Crown, the defense attorney, and the judge, uh, so to, to mitigate any impact of, or, or any chance of anybody actually finding errors. That's true. Um, and, you know, you're right, very different from the Bosma case. With the Bosma case, we spent sometimes days, sometimes, you know, a week at a time um, without the jury in the courtroom uh, doing legal arguments because it was such a complicated case and there was no preliminary hearing. And as people know, there are other charges, other trials that will be coming up involving the accused. So um, so lots and lots of legal issues to hammer out in that trial. At this trial, the Badgero trial, uh, virtually all those legal arguments have already been dealt with at the three other trials or at appeals or at preliminary hearings and pretrial conferences. I mean, you know, lawyers have been meeting and talking about this case for years and years and years. So by the time this trial actually ran, there was very little left to discuss. And the few times during the trial where where um, legal issues did come up, and really like three or four times, and, and only, you know, um, the jury was only out for minutes at a time, um, any disagreements, any concerns were dealt with immediately on the spot with, you know, the Justice Patrick Flynn saying, well, how shall we deal with this? And you know, the Crown and the defense offering up their solutions and then coming to an agreement. 
So it seems unlikely, given that, that the solutions, the resolutions were agreed upon, that you know the defense could now go uh, turn around and say, but there were problems and there were errors made because they were already sorted out. You mentioned that at some point uh, Bajero has to present a more detailed accounting or, or I guess, justification for, for the need for an appeal in this situation. What's the, what's the time frame for something like this? Uh, I, I, don't, I guess we can't be specific about this case, but f- again, from your experience in covering these things over the years, Susan, d- d- does this take a year or six months? How, what's, how long before he files that and then before the, the court would actually respond to it? Potentially years. Um, on the you know best case scenario is is maybe ten or twelve months, but more typically a year, uh, two years, maybe even three years um, uh, before the Ontario Court of Appeal decides whether it, it um, is going to hear, hear this appeal or not. This is a very long process, um, and uh, you know. <laughs> We know, I mean, this case has already been going on for 35 years, and that's what makes this remarkable, is even with a new conviction, there really is no end in sight. So, if if in fact the court rules, the Court of Appeal rules that uh, that they won't grant this, does he have any other recourse, or is that the end of it? That would be the end of it. He can't go to a higher court at that stage? Uh, well, it's... It, not likely. I mean, I suppose he could, um, but in virtually all cases, the Supreme Court of Canada upholds the ruling of the lower court. So, um, yeah, I guess it's possible, but, um, you know, I, I guess what I should say, Bill, is that I've learned with this case, with the Badgero case, that anything's possible. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about the uh, the Marineland situation right now. For those of you who've been listening to CHML News over the last uh, number of hours, you know that Marineland has been charged uh, with six counts of animal cruelty. Now, the company has dismissed these allegations, accusing Ontario's Animal Welfare Agency of acting on behalf of what they call a band of discredited activists. The uh, charges were filed by the Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. They relate to a number of land animals that are kept at the attraction in Niagara Falls, uh, they include one count each of permitting elk, red deer, fallow deer to be in distress, and one count each of failing to provide the standards of care for these animals. And uh, Marineland's assertion is that essentially the uh, uh, Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals is simply being pushed and forced into delaying these charges uh, by some of these what they call discredited animal activists. Well, are they? Uh, is there a change of mood here in, in, in the way that we, the public, view these uh, sorts of enterprises, whether it's Marine Land or a number of other ones? I, I know in a related story, SeaWorld is, uh, in at least the one in the West Coast right now, is talking about uh, ending their, uh, their orca whale program uh, that uh, has been in place for quite some time. No word on how, what the other uh, parks are going to be doing about that. But I'm wondering if this is sh- uh, signaling a shift in what's going on. And, and are people that are complaining about this, are they just discredited activists, as Marine Line would suggest. I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the, the number to reach us here is 905-645-3221, 645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Do you side with Marine Land or do you decide with the, uh, decide with the Ontario 
Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals who laid these charges. Now, by the way, there has been no court date yet. That, that's coming up in, in about another 10 days or so. Uh, so these charges have not been proven in court, but they are pretty severe allegations. Before we go to your thoughts on this, let me bring uh, Camille Labchuk into the conversation. Camille is the executive director of Animal Justice. And Camille, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, it's always great to be here, Bill. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this scenario and, and maybe in the broader discussion, if we could, Camille, about about uh, societal attitudes towards these uh, these sorts of parks and these sorts of uh, entertainment venues. Uh, because I, th- I think there's a growing discussion about this and, and, and maybe even a change in focus and a change in, in attitude towards these. What's your take on it? You're absolutely right. What we're seeing right now is a massive societal realignment and attitude towards keeping animals in captivity for human entertainment. And the overwhelming feeling is that people are starting to say, I don't really think it's appropriate that we should keep these animals in tiny cages just so people can look at them, that we should take them away from their families, take them away from what's normal and natural for them in the wild, remove their ability to live in appropriate social groupings just so that we can have a fleeting moment of looking at them and feeling amused by that. And when we talk about marine mammals and specifically, uh, in particular, I think that this really kicked off by the film Blackfish, which first sort of blew the whistle on the treatment of orca whales in captivity at SeaWorld. And in particular, this one orca whale, Tilikum, who sadly died last week after several decades in captivity. And, and which probably, I guess, was a factor in, in that version of SeaWorld, that particular area, actually just saying, well, they're going to phase out their program. Uh, and, and because there was quite a bit of pushback. Now, we don't know what the other ones are going to do, because I know there are other SeaWorlds in different parts of, uh, of the states as well that seem to want to continue with this. But but is is that concern at this stage, Camille, is it, is it a factor in this? Is it, are people starting to, to make their voices heard about these concerns? Definitely. What we saw with SeaWorld is that that company was forced to announce that it would stop holding its uh, killer whale shows, these performances that were really synonymous with SeaWorld itself. When you think about SeaWorld, you think about these orcas doing tricks for people and splashing the crowds. And because of this massive public outcry over the treatment of these animals and confining them in the equivalent of a bathtub for their entire lives, where they're often driven insane, literally insane, that's the only thing that forced SeaWorld to make this change. So it really was the power of consumers who said, yeah, we're not going to go to your facility anymore. And it was their stock uh, crashing drastically and them realizing that they were taking a financial hit, that their bottom line was suffering. Uh, and it would continue to suffer if they didn't clean up this cruelty. How do you feel about the assertion that Marineland has made in, in, in their reaction to these charges being laid, uh, that these organizations that they've mentioned, now they didn't mention specifically uh, animal justice, but, but other organizations as discredited activists? <laughs> I laughed when I read that line. I'm not sure what it means, first of all. Uh, the OSPCA which laid the charges, is known by animal advocates. And, you know, I'm an animal rights lawyer, and I, I often submit complaints to the OSPCA asking for charges to be laid in all kinds of situations. And they're known by people within this field. It's a very conservative organization. They do not go laying charges left and right every time there's a mere allegation of animal cruelty. They are extremely diligent, and they usually err on the side of not prosecuting uh, facilities that keep animals. So we're, we applaud the OSPCA for laying these charges against marine land. Are the laws in this province strong enough? No, the laws aren't strong enough. The laws, uh, 
here's a major problem when it comes to zoos and aquariums in this province, is that there is no licensing or even a registration system for zoos and aquariums. So that the government has no way of going in and shutting down a facility that might be inappropriate and might be abusing animals and keeping them in, in, in inappropriate conditions. Uh, in all other provinces and jurisdictions around the world, zoos have to be licensed. They have to be inspected regularly and they have to meet standards that uh, are a requirement for their operations. But in Ontario, anyone can open up a roadside zoo. You or I could put an elephant in our backyard so long as there is no municipal ban on keeping an elephant and start a, you know, a, a private menagerie or a roadside petting zoo. And this happens all the time. So even when we're talking about marine land here, there's no way for the government to come in and shut down this facility, which is deeply worrying to us. Are, but but you mentioned that first of all there are there are rules in place. Second of all, there are supposed to be inspections. Uh, invariably, what I hear time and time again, whether we're talking about traffic safety or animal rights uh, in in situations like this, Camille, the, the response I usually hear from the government is, "Well, we simply don't have the staff to do the kind of work that needs to be done here." Is that the case here? Well, you know that's a really good point. Laws are only so good if they're enforcement, and if nobody is out there ensuring that animal welfare is actually, uh, that the standards are actually being met, then there might as well be no law on the books at all. And we've been pushing the provincial government for quite some time to bring in a licensing system for zoos and have mandatory inspections such that, you know, every uh, few months an inspector goes in there and looks to make sure that the animals are not being kept in, in substandard conditions. What, uh, what, the, what the system depends on right now is complaints from the public, and the OSCCA said that their investigation was in response to a complaint that they received, but it wasn't a proactive uh, visit to the facility just to check up on things. So uh, really, the proactivity there is, is what we need to see from law enforcement, and the government needs to devote more resources to that because it's important. What about the argument that I've heard from some of these facilities? Well, this is actually educational. This is giving people an opportunity to to see the, the, these these mammals, uh, these animals, whatever the case might be, uh, and 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 to learn about them. And it, that, that there's there's a real learning element to this. I think that line of argument has pretty much been thoroughly debunked at this point. What studies have found over and over again is that people who do go to facilities like this spend very little time reading the displays, the educational displays. They glance at these animals who are kept in completely unnatural, inappropriate environments in most cases. And they don't learn anything about what it's like to be, uh, you know, a beluga in the wild or a seal in the wild. They just see what it's like to be a seal imprisoned in a, a concrete tank. Uh, another argument that zoos and aquariums often put up is that they're contributing to conservation and they, you know, educate people about the plight of these animals and then that helps them in the wild. And that as well has actually been, um, you know, there's absolutely no evidence to support that claim. And, you know, in fact, in some cases, it seems that what we're teaching our children is that it's okay to keep animals in prison in these concrete tanks. And that may actually have negative outcomes for how we treat them in the wild. So I think those lines of argument at this point have been completely debunked. Last time I was at Marine Line, it was many, many years ago, back in the 70s when I was working in radio down in Niagara. And uh, long story short, they have, there's a bear pit. Now, I have no idea if it's still there. But uh, first of all, natural environment I thought was a bit of a stretch because it's a big concrete area, uh, you know, down below. Uh, and I'll give you a 10-second story here. There's a little booth that was set up there and says bear food, which you could buy to feed the bear. And, of course, now you couldn't actually do it. You had to toss it down to them. 
So what it was was, and I forget how much it was, a couple of bucks or something, and it was a styrofoam cup full of penny candy. Candy. And I figured oh. this can't be, this is not bear food, first of all, and it can't be good for the bears. Now, now, I, and, and i got to put this in context, that was back in the 70s, and I'm sure, at least I hope things have changed since then. But, but it just kind of goes, I think, to underscore exactly uh, the disconnect and the incongruity in, in, in this idea of what these are, are animals in their natural environment. They're not. You're, yeah, you're, you couldn't be more right. And in fact, Bill, the first set of charges that the OSCCA laid against Marineland back in November, they've already laid five charges against them for uh, in relation to peacocks, guinea hen, and even bears. So, um, you know, this issue is ongoing. What's is is there middle ground to be reached here? Because I, I know that uh, one of the the, the allegations at this stage is that uh, this this latest series of charges against Marineland are are actually uh, being motivated uh, by by a former employee. That's the Marineland's assertion that this is a disgruntled ex employee who's trying to get back at them. Uh, the individual there was somebody who apparently is uh, giving them information about this, but his assertion is uh, that he left on on good terms with them and that he is uh, he's. He doesn't want to see the place closed. He just wants to see some of the injustices here uh, cleared up. Is is there a middle ground that you can shoot for here? Well, you know, that's, that's interesting. Every time an animal facility like a zoo or aquarium or a factory farm is busted for cruelty to animals, they, they usually blame it on a disgruntled former employee. But the fact is that videos and photos don't lie. The OSCC investigation that doesn't lie. What we're seeing here is very real concerns now being addressed, which is a good thing. And, and and obviously, as I say, I, we can't comment about whether or not these charges are going to have any validity. That'll be determined in court when they go there later this month. But the fact is, is, is it your assertion at this point, Camille, that where there's smoke, there's fire? Well, uh, what I'll say about that, you know, again, of course, I don't know the details of many of these allegations. They're still quite new. But uh, people have been very concerned for many years about the treatment of animals at Marineland. Uh, that's, that's, that, that is known. There are uh, numerous allegations that have come forward in the news for many, many years, and um, Marineland is actually suing a number of people to uh, counteract those those allegations. Um, but what's been clear is that uh, for a very long time, people have been concerned about the treatment of animals at Marineland. They've been concerned that animals have been kept in captivity there at all, and uh, many people are simply asking what took this long. We should actually maybe define exactly what we're talking about here because, I mean, there are other facilities that some people may want to group into this. Uh, there's the Marine Line. You talked about SeaWorld a few minutes ago. As you mentioned, there are other you know petting zoos and things of this nature. Uh, we have the African Lion Safari here in the Hamilton area as well, uh, which uh, is an area that doesn't seem to be under the same kind of strict supervision. I mean, the, the people seem to accept the fact that, okay, these are animals that seem to be out of their element. I mean, you know, I, I don't see too many lions you know, in southern Ontario, but they're there. But mind you, they've got space to roam around. But you juxtapose that, uh, Camille, against, for instance, animal sanctuaries, and we do have some of those around too, which seems to me to be the the other end of the spectrum, uh, where those animals are in their natural environment and cared for in that in that fashion. You know, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that is the future of zoos. It, it, it won't be the. It won't be zoos as we know them, but they will be sanctuaries. There were. There will always be a need to uh, take care of animals who've been injured, who can't live in their natural habitat for legitimate reasons, and that's really what we should be moving towards: is providing a sanctuary, a safe place for these animals to live in, as close as we can get it to their natural environment. And, you know, not necessarily in view of the public where people can 
uh, look at these animals, that, that, that shouldn't be the top priority. The top priority should be giving them as natural a life as possible, and then if we can uh, you know, learn something about them in the process, that's okay. But that should be a secondary goal. And the first thing that we should keep in mind is always what's best for them, not what, not what is most entertaining for us. Sadly, because I, I know there's one of those up uh, up near Cambridge. As a matter of fact, it's for donkeys. And my, my daughter actually sponsors a couple of the donkeys up there and oh. go up there to visit them. And uh, no, I haven't been. My my wife and and my daughters have been up there, and it's a, a magnificent facility up there. And again, uh, they're in their natural habitat. They're being looked after. There's freedom to roam, etc. Uh, you can pet them in some instances, and there's photo ops and things of this nature. But it's not as if they're trained. Okay, you know, count to five or anything like that. This this is not it. This is not indoctrination. This is just allowing animals to live. It's a, it's a totally different mindset. Yeah, the sanctuary movement is a, a really beautiful thing, and we've got a lot of stunning sanctuaries in Ontario that take really great care of animals and really put their needs first. Uh, one thing that's exciting when we talk about aquariums is that there is even a movement to start seaside sanctuaries to rehome former animals who were kept at uh, aquariums for most of their lives. So uh, there's an organization right now uh, funded through the United States, it's actually examining a number of locations in Canada for these sanctuaries, including Nova Scotia and British Columbia. So I, I think what we're seeing right now is really people turning against keeping animals in captivity, especially when we talk about marine mammals and cetaceans, and sanctuaries are going to be the future. Where do we go from here? Because uh, this this is a, the latest in the in the marine land saga. Uh, you mentioned about some of the litigation and potential litigation that's gone on in some of the Sea World locations. Uh, I mean, there's a zoo in Toronto. There are zoos all over in Canadian cities and American cities as well. Uh, and, and again, I guess we go back to this question: is uh, given where we are with the status quo, which I think more and more people are starting to feel uncomfortable about. Uh, do we do we look for these places to get shut down? Do we look for these places to, to change their mindset? Where where we go from here? What's, what are the next steps? Well, I think the best thing for the animals is to start converting these places to, to sanctuaries. And, you know, there are a number of zoos in the States in particular that have already started moving to some extent down this road. I think it's inevitable, and I think that the ones who adapt uh, more quickly to this model will, will ultimately uh, do better in the long run. Uh, the other thing I think is going to start happening is governments actually imposing bans on keeping certain animals. So there is a bill right now that just passed the first vote in the Senate, the Canadian Senate, to ban keeping whales and dolphins in captivity at all unless for uh, rescue rehabilitation purposes. So this bill, I uh, believe it will pass. It still has some way to go. But what your listeners can do if they want to get involved is contact their member of parliament, contact the senators in their province, and tell them that they support this. I, I always wonder, for instance, even in the marine land situation, but I, we're focusing on them, obviously, because of the, the potential litigation that's going on here. But but in one area there, and, and they talk about it with the charges that were laid here, uh, they, you know, they have red deer and fallow deer there, uh, you know, inside these, these, these penned-off areas. You you can probably go 500 yards outside of those gates, Camille, and you can find deer that are roaming freely out there. I, if you want to see deer, it it, it seems uh, just very very different and incongruous that they would say, well, let's let's pen them up now so everybody can have a look at them. Well, it it, it really is just sad. These animals deserve to be living free in their natural habitats where they can roam um, great distances. They can live in the woods. They can live in appropriate social groupings with their families. And they're denied um, all of that when they're kept in captivity. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
Let's uh, talk about what's going on in Ottawa. Prime Minister Trudeau will be making a cabinet shuffle today. Uh, we were told initially that it might be minor, but now we're told that it might involve six or eight people, which is, I guess, is a little bit beyond minor, especially some folks uh, that have been around for quite a long time. One of the projected changes is uh, Stefan Dion moving out of foreign affairs, and another, uh, John McCallum, could be uh, removed from uh, the immigration portfolio. Uh, what's going on? Why is it going on? And what are the implications? Well, let's uh, talk to Henry Jasek about that. He is, of course, a professor of political science at McMaster University. First of all, Henry, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Always happy to be with you, Bill. Uh, why do prime ministers do this? Now, th- th- this is a government that's not quite been in place for two years now. And, uh, the, you know, there was a much uh, a ballyhoo about this cabinet, you know, the, the gender parity and things of this nature. Uh, some veterans from previous liberal administrations are involved in this. When when prime ministers decide to shake things up, is it because they're displeased with performance, or are, are there other motivations here? Well, I think there's two things that are going on here. I expected some of these changes that we're hearing about to happen next year. They're happening now because there is a big challenge to Canada, and his name is Donald Trump. Uh, it is terribly, terribly important to Trudeau that he has a good working relationship with Donald Trump so he can protect uh, the Canadian economy, and and he's taking steps ever since Donald Trump was elected to to establish uh, good relationships with them. So he's moved these the things that he would have done uh, previously up. The other one is he wants to keep his popularity above forty percent. If he's forty percent or more, he thinks he can win a majority the next time, and he doesn't want to have to dig himself out of a hole that is uh, less than 40% to get up to majority territory. So he's doing a lot of things to basically stay above that 40% level. So he's really already has his eye fixed on the next election. He knows that he'll be judged by the, uh, he assumes he'll be judged by the Canadian people about his ability to manage the economy. Uh, and one thing I think uh, probably your viewers should should uh, take note of and most wouldn't because this happened a long time ago, but for Trudeau, it's like it happened yesterday, even though he wasn't born yet, is what happened to his father. His father had a big majority in 1968, was reduced in four years to a very slim minority and almost lost his government and might have ended his career right there if it, he dipped down a little bit more. Uh, he And the reason his father lost his big majority, his father neglected paying attention to the economy. His father was interested in legal matters, all sorts of other things. The economy was low on his, uh, on his agenda, and it almost cost him the government. Justin, the son, does not want to repeat the, the mistake his father made. And so he's learned a lot from that. And, and to add to it the Donald, you know, Donald Trump factor and his uh, Donald Trump wanting to uh, you know, basically penalize imports from other countries, uh, if American manufacturers go to those countries, he's got that top of mind. How would you classify and maybe even evaluate, uh, Henry, the, 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 the Trudeau reaction to the Trump presidency, the Trump election, actually, the presidency right. hasn't technically started yet. Right. But, but, but of course, uh, the prime minister himself and, and, uh, and, and the ambassador actually did a, a YouTube video uh, basically saying, hey, we're your buddies here. Uh, some people kind of characterize that as groveling. And others uh, ca- hailed it as a, as a proactive move to, to kind of strengthen the bonds that exist between the two countries. Well, it, there, it makes no sense to get into a fight with Donald Trump right now. We know with Donald Trump, if you, you know, you, you poke him in one eye, he'll poke you in two eyes. And we're a much smaller country than the United States. We don't have any choice 
uh, we, we have no choice of getting into a fight with Donald Trump. It would be terribly stupid. I think he's doing what is best for Canadians. Notice very quickly, as soon as Trump was elected, how he started making big changes. So, for example, when Fidel Castro died at his funeral, remembering that Fidel Castro was an honorary pallbearer at his own father's funeral in Quebec. But instead, Trudeau, as soon as he saw that, uh, that Trump was elected, he didn't go to Fidel Castro's funeral. He knew that certainly Trump and the people around him had a very negative view of Castro, and he was not about to be seen as somebody who was, you know, very close to Castro. He didn't want to insult, you know, he, he, he was really afraid probably of setting off a negative reaction from Trump. He has sent some of his trust, most trusted advisors down to work with the transition team, uh, he, uh, he, he's, he's top of mind, essentially, is how can he maintain a good economic relationship with the United States and protect jobs and protect our economy. There have been, as, as uh, was reported uh, late last week, uh, meetings, as you mentioned, uh, between uh, two of Trudeau's top advisors and, and two of the incoming uh, uh, Trump presidency uh, uh, administration uh, folks on this, too. Uh, is is this to try to reaffirm where we stand right now, or is it to try to gain some clarity? Because there seems to be uh, a disconnect, oftentimes, Henry, between some of the things that Trump says he's going to do and some of the things that, by constitutional law, he's allowed to do. Well, yes, that, and 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 the third thing is what he actually is going to do. Uh, so, yeah, you can't. I, I don't think people should quickly react to everything he says. Uh, that he's going to do, because you're, as you're right, some of the things he can't do constitutionally, some of the things are going to depend on Congress going along with him, and it's very unclear that they're going to do it. Are they going to give him billions and billions of dollars to build a wall between U.S. and Mexico? That's going to be interesting. <laughs> I'm a little skeptical there. Uh, we'll see, though. But so uh, we have to see what he's going to do. But nonetheless, we know what he would like to do. And so you want to get in the ground floor, not not even not even to be just clarifying what he's going to do because you want to be part of the decision making you what he what he's probably wanting to, what he wants to do is to tell trump send message to trump listen we're your friend we recognize what you want to do we know you want to you know protect the your economy uh... you want to build it up because i'm sure trump knows that if he's going to be reelected and assuming he's going to run four years from now he's going to have to deliver on his promises about uh, jobs in the united states so he's so they have uh, so he's got to you know convince Trump I'm going to help you here and let me give you uh, uh, two predictions here that I think follow right from this probably the most boldest one is that I think within two years we're going to see a very big a joint announcement between Trump and Trudeau about a revitalization and investment in the Great Lakes Basin. This this is a common interest between Trudeau and Trump. Trump believes and i think quite rightly he's president because he won five of the eight great lakes states he has to deliver to those states in terms of jobs and revitalizing their economy for for trudeau for him to win the next election he's got to win big in ontario and quebec and of course a lot of great lakes traffic goes past you know montreal and quebec city and may you know is a boost for that area as well so they have a very common interest so I expect to see some very big things about the St. Lawrence Seaway and about Great Lakes revitalization, because this is just a, a real common interest between Justin and, and Trump. And I think the second thing is I bet after the first meeting uh, between Trudeau and Trump, whenever it occurs, I, my prediction that what Trump will say is, 
I really can work with this guy. I really like Tr- Justin Trudeau. He's a he's a sensible guy, and he's on. You know, he's he's going to help us. Yet he's not going to the inauguration. Is that going to cause some uh, some ruffled feathers? I think uh, whether he goes to inauguration or not, I don't think is a big thing. The important thing is what they do when the two of them are in the room together, one on one. That that's what's really going to be important. And of course, the groundwork for this is laid by the officials who've been working with the transition team. He sent his two trust, most trusted aides, Gerald Butts and Katie Telford, down to to be working with the transition team. That's a very very wise move. He's got a an ambassador down in down in Washington, a new ambassador who who understands how important trade is and the economy is. He Trudeau has his eye on the economic ball. He knows he's got to deliver economically for Canada if he's going to win uh, re-election. All right, let's talk about some of the potential changes here. Now, and again, we're waiting for confirmation on all of these, but right. it appears at this stage, Henry, as if John McCallum is out, uh, longtime minister, of course, in, in the Martin government and uh, Trudeau, or, or the Cretchen government. Uh, the, uh, the rumor I've heard is he's actually going to be appointed ambassador to China, but he's not going to be in cabinet anymore. And Stefan Dion is going to be replaced in foreign affairs. Uh, that's an interesting twist uh, b- because of government relations, as you've talked about, between Canada and the U.S. Uh, there has been, since uh, the prime minister was elected here, uh, some concern about Stefan Dion in that foreign affairs cabinet, whether or not he had the chops to, to be able to, to play tough when you need to be tough uh, on the international stage. Is that why that change is coming? I, I don't think that was the big thing, certainly as long as people were expecting Hillary Clinton to, uh, to win. The thing about Justin, uh, sorry, about Stefan Dion, who's a political scientist and someone who I've known before he was ever in active politics life, he is a person who primarily, he's a very good scholar, he's primarily mm-hmm. a scholar who studied Canada and Europe. He knew, knew very little and had very little interest in the United States. He also had relatively little interest in the economy. Now, what's what's very, right today? What's the most important thing for Justin Trudeau? Relationship with the U.S. and economic matters, and so that's why he's being hastened to uh, out of that portfolio, and he wants to have a foreign affairs minister in there who can work with people in the United States, can work with Donald Trump, and people, and a person who you know has their eye on the economic ball. Now, I thought this was going to happen a year from now, because normally what happens is that if you have a former elder statesman in your cabinet. Uh, like like Dion, you would normally give a minister of foreign affairs, and that's usually viewed as sort of for a person like that the exit cabinet post. And so you'd give it to him for a couple of years. It's, it'll be his last cabinet post. He goes out on a high note. And I think this is unfortunately for him, maybe perhaps it's been rushed because of the Trump, uh, uh, you know, uh, election. But this was going to happen next year. I was fairly fairly confident. And and the rumor is he's going to go over to an ambassadorship probably to France, but I'm sure they're going to want to keep him far away from the United States. Is is it true at this stage too, Henry, that uh, when we talk about foreign affairs, that you can't have that discussion now without also talking about international trade. I mean, you've you've got obviously the the I guess what is almost inevitable in renegotiation of NAFTA uh, with Canada and the U.S. You've got the, the European trade deals which are in the works right now, uh, and and there are environmental aspects to those too. Is that why they're looking at somebody like a Christina Freeland to take over foreign affairs? Well, she's got she has a good record. Well, she's in, has been in charge of international trade. She's a person who spends a lot of a close attention to economic affairs, has good economic knowledge, has very good contacts into the U.S. So it, I, I think it's a natural to move her in. 
and probably the view is that she can, uh, you know, deal very well with the uh, with with the uh, chief cabinet minister she has to interact with in the United States. So. Uh, I, I think this is a very wise move, and it's a very understandable move on the part of Justin Trudeau. She's a different personality than Stefan Dion. As you mentioned, Dion more of an academic. Uh, Christina Freeland, a, a more overt personality. Uh, the, is, is, is there some concern here, or maybe from, from the prime minister's standpoint, that you want somebody who can who, who be vibrant, somebody who can, can control a room when you're having these, these high-level meetings with U.S. government officials? Yeah, and you sound sympathetic, and you know these people, and you like working with these people. And, and also, I mean, uh, I mean, I know a lot is made about uh, Stefan's personality. I think it's a little overblown. He's described as prickly. I think that's a little too much. Uh, they just, I mean, I mean, Stefan has a couple of problems. One of which, English is not his first language. He's not very good in English. Now that would be a liability down in the United States. And he also has, and is not widely known, he does have hearing problems. And so, uh, carrying on a conversation with him sometimes he misses stuff, especially when you're speaking in English. I know I, if I have to speak to Stefan, I have to look be face to face with him so he can also read my lips. I'm talking in English, which is uh, not his first language. His hearing's not very good. Now he's just not the type of you know, he's just not the type of person that you would have want to have in in the United States. And he has no interest. He has very little interest in what happens in the United States. So you know, there's so many reasons why you don't want someone like Stefan Dion having a lot to do with the new American government. A couple of veterans, uh, Dion and, and McCallum, probably going to be moved out. Uh, Miriam Monsef, who, uh, as you told us a couple of weeks ago, and I totally agree with you, I think kind of got thrown under the bus by uh, right. this administration with this electoral reform thing. She's probably going to stay in cabinet, but probably not that portfolio. Are, are there any up-and-comers, people that have kind of proven their chops uh, in, in the back benches or working as, as assistants uh, well, that, that may rumors, be elevated? Yeah, one of the rumors locally, Karina Gould is going to go into cabinet. That's what one rumor. Uh, and I, I doesn't surprise me. I expected she would go in before too long, uh, because you know she has a very impressive background. And also, there's been a big hole in our area. If you've looked at the cabinet and you looked at Niagara, Hamilton, Haldeman, Norfolk, uh, Brantford, Halton, uh, no cabinet minister. And so we've had a very big hole here. And I, I just don't think that Justin could have gone too much longer before the people in this area would start to feel that he's out of touch with us because he doesn't have a cabinet minister here. This, uh, the, so th- that fills a bit of a hole. I think on the other side, the, the people who, well, areas that are losing, is I think he's made a decision for the time being that he doesn't really have to be overly concerned with uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Uh, the rumor is the Manitoba minister is, is out of cabinet. Uh, the, I think it's clear to Trudeau that the two, two of the premiers who cause him a lot of trouble is, well, especially Brad Wall is his biggest, biggest problem among the premiers. The new premier in Manitoba is also a problem. And he, I think he probably looks and says, listen, I could win a majority with the other eight provinces. The, the Liberal Party federally and provincially is weak in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And I can win with the other eight provinces as long as I can get good-sized majorities in Ontario, Quebec, B.C., and Alberta, and then add on what you can get out of the Atlantic provinces, I can get another majority. I don't really have to spend a lot of time worrying about Manitoba and Saskatchewan 
uh, whose premiers are not all that friendly to me, and also I'm not likely to get much out of there because the Liberal Party on the ground is very weak in those two provinces. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.